Blah, y'all already know what it is. Your boy Yako, what it do? The outlet to reality, the holders podcast in Vegas and Chicago. What up? This is the place where you want to hide from your drama or maybe hide from your baby mama. Aha, just kidding. But, anyways, fans, thank you for staying tuned. Don't forget to like, share, comment, and subscribe. Cha-ching! And today we have a very special guest who is part of the Jewish. Uh, one of the biggest Jewish organizations, uh, Rabbi Cutler. Rabbi, I'm missing that that the name of it. I, got, I just had it. I lost it. Las, <laughs> Las Vegas Jewish Experience. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. See, I needed that right hook. I was like, man, I just had it. And, I, and like, it like it stopped. <laughs> oh, man. Well, look, Rabbi, I, I got to say, so for, for my fans and my audience to know, uh, I met Rabbi Cutler for the first time at the Moisha House. I uh, just did an interview with Noah, so he shared about, you know, how it was to be part of the Moisha House. And it was amazing, Rabbi, because when you came, um, you brought so much food. You brought pita bread, hummus, uh, shawarma. You, you, you probably made me gain some weight because it was a lot of food, but I'm so <laughs> grateful. <laughs> and I love that you are one of the best storytellers that I've ever heard, like in my life. And the way I love that we were able to, um, debate, share our questions. And it was about 15 or 20 of us. It was amazing. And, and Rabbi, if, if you could share a little bit about, because the theme of the topic that time when you were giving the share was about uh, what is culture. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, actually a really fun topic always to talk about because there's so many misconceptions people have about what is and what isn't kosher, right? You get You get some people who think that, well, you know, kosher means healthy or it means it's blessed by a rabbi or all types of other stuff. But then even amongst people who know a little bit more, there's still a lot of things people don't really know about what it takes to make something kosher. You know, for example, right, one of the most common misconceptions people have is that you can just walk into a vegan restaurant and, you know, everything there will be kosher because, hey, there's no milk, there's no meat. What could possibly be wrong um, if you go into a vegan place? So, you know, for, so we have, uh, you know, we like to talk about that kind of stuff and what are the practical things that can come up, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the regular stuff that comes up every day in terms of, you know, how to choose a restaurant that's right, that's kosher, or know what's on a package or how to make your kitchen kosher to, you know, obviously the really crazy stories. Uh, so I'll give you an example. One of, one of uh, the other rabbis in Vegas was once checking out a factory to make sure that it was kosher. And he's looking around, he's checking out all the different things, and he sees a little jar, um, you know, sitting next to one of the machines. And he asks the owner, you know, what is that? And they goes, oh, it's, uh, it's pig blood. You know, we use that. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, so it's, you know, a lot of times people don't even, you know, and the owner wasn't trying to be like, malicious or anything. He just didn't really know, you know, what, what was and what wasn't. And, and therefore... It's really helpful, you know, for a lot of people who are interested in keeping kosher for them to have, you know, the basic understanding of, you know, what what's kosher, what's not. And, uh, you know, it's a great it's a great way for people to really connect um, to their to their heritage. A little bit of background noise going on. It's uh, my son's birthday today. Oh, so man. Rabbi. Thank you. So we got a lot of activity going on to uh, get get everyone ready for the party. Right, right. <laughs> 
Oh, man, Rabbi. Now, look, Rabbi, I, I want to ask you something, because this is a very interesting thing I never knew about growing up, you know, in the, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Rogers Park in Chicago's very orthodox community. And we knew that we shouldn't eat any product or food uh, that had a, a triangle K on it. And, and people thought we just knew we couldn't. Right. Um, I knew it wasn't kosher, even though for people that don't know, they may think it's kosher, but it's not. Uh, rabbi, you shared something very interesting, how um, it, how that rabbi from New York was actually, uh, if you could share a little bit about it, because sure. you lived a few blocks away, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sure, right. So, yeah, so they're, they're, they're you know, the, uh, you know, one of the things that's important when we talk about kosher symbols being good or not good is, you know, is that every symbol is going to have certain rabbis who are in charge of it, and they're going to have to make decisions, you know, about complicated cases, you know, whether they should rely on certain things and, and certain, you know, a lot of, you know, as, as, as we know, right, two Jews, three opinions. So there are many different arguments in a lot of different areas of, of Judaism. And therefore, you know, you have someone who's in charge of making decisions about when to rely on certain opinions. And therefore, you know, between the different kosher agencies, you're going to have some that are going to rely on, on opinions that are a little bit more mainstream. And some that are going to be willing to take, you know, certain minority opinions for, for reasons they feel are, are worthy, even if maybe you and I wouldn't necessarily rely on them. So, you know, the rabbi runs the trial. He happens to be really, really fantastic rabbi. He's uh, really, you know, really uh, well you know, respected. And, you know, when I've dealt with him, I've had really wonderful experiences. You know, but he has certain opinions um, you know, that in, in, in order to try to bring, you know, some of the costs down and try to make, make it a little bit easier for people to kosher, to rely on certain opinions that are not so well accepted. Um, so one of, the, one of the rabbis who co-gives the certification on certain of some of their, some of their products are trying, okay, was actually the rabbi of, of, of my synagogue growing up. And, you know, one time I called him and I asked him about it because, you know, one of my students had asked me, there's this new meat that had just come to town, to Vegas. They used to sell it at Winco. They don't do it anymore. And it had a triangle K and it had also my rabbi certification on it. So I asked him, you know, what, what would you uh, say about this? And he said, look, you know, I give the certification on it because I think, you know, for people who can't afford it, it's better they should eat this than to, uh, than to eat something which is definitely not kosher. You know, but I wouldn't eat it in my own house, right? So it, it's, you know, you have these kind of complicated, you know, conversations about how do you balance between trying to make kosher as widely accessible for everyone as possible, you know, without really, without violating the rules. And when can you rely on certain leniencies or certain minority opinions? So, you know, I, I think most, you know, the, definitely the majority of the religious community doesn't rely on trying, okay? But once again, I think, you know, the reasons they're doing it is, is definitely comes from very, you know, good reasons. And I think there are other lessons we can take from it, right, is that we may not agree with the way they do it, but it is an important thing for, for people in the community to try to make sure that everybody, you know, has access to kosher food and that nobody shouldn't be able to eat kosher because of financial reasons. Right, right. No, that's very deep, Rabbi. It's amazing. And, and even how, like, you know, when how that makes you know something kosher right we cannot eat the blood right you know you know in in the in the chumish right when you study torah 
um, it talks about, you know, we can't have, you know, the blood, right? We, we can't, you know, we can't eat meat with, with blood. Um, you can't eat the mom of the, of like the calf. I, I'm trying to get the, the pasuk right, the verse, Rabbi. <laughs> you cannot have a, a, a calf in its mother, a, a goat actually kid in its mother's milk. There you Is go. That there you go. Yeah, that's the one, Rabbi. See, I knew you were smart. I knew you were <laughs> smart. So that's the one that's very interesting because, you know, when people read the Torah, the Chumash, right, literally, there's still stuff missing that we need help understanding more detail, more deep. And I, I feel like that's why it's good that when you study Gemara, you study the Talmud, you're able to understand the practice and like Shechita, like, you know, um, you know, how they kill the animal. So I, I think is uh that's why it's very important to read both the oral and the the written. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean the you know, from from a Jewish perspective, okay, to read the to read just the written Torah without, you know, what's called Torah the written Torah, without Torah Shabbat, the oral Torah, um, is not really um a useful thing. And if you look in the Torah itself, it's it's very clear about that. And and the example you gave Shrita is actually the perfect example. Because if you look in the Torah, the Torah says that you should slaughter the animal in the way in which I told you. But if you look in the entire Torah, it'll never tell you what's the way that I told you, right? Because there's the oral component of the Torah. And you see this throughout a lot of different mitzvahs. You know, for example, for putting on tefillin every day, right? If you look around, you know, you know, everybody's putting on Basically, you know, the same same tefillin, same parsha, same the same text that are written inside of it, the same, you know, colors, the same wrapping. And yet, if you look at the Torah, nowhere is there a description of what tefillin looks like, right? The words even that's used for it is a word that doesn't really appear anywhere else in the Torah. And we don't even, and, and there's even a whole question amongst the different, you know, sages about what the origin of the word is. So if you if you read just read the written Torah and you don't have you know the oral law that goes with it, it's really you know an impossible um, thing to understand. There are so many different um, mitzvos that are brought down in the Torah where the details and are not described. There's there's a Mishnah in Chagiga. Right, so Chagiga is, is the part of the Mishnah where it talks about the rules of different um, holidays and the and and the sacrifices that are brought on the holiday. But if you look at it, it actually goes off, you know, like like all good Jewish uh, texts, it goes off on a lot of really interesting tangents. Okay, so one of the things that talk, one of the missions of Chagigas talks about this idea that you have different types of mitzvos, and some of them are very, very, you know, much have lots of details, lots of rules that are written out directly in the written law. And you have other things, let's say, for example, Shabbos, right? Shabbos is... If, if, if it's almost the fundamental, most fundamental mitzvah of Judaism in a certain way, right? When, when we describe someone who's religious, the way you describe them is Shomer Shabbos, as their, their Sabbath observant. That's almost the, the defining test that we use for how to decide whether someone is religious or not. And yet, if you look in the Torah, okay, and Shabbos has lots and lots of laws, but there's only really a few different verses that go, that go to some of the laws and not even really in depth. It's really through the oral law, okay. Which and, and and obviously there's sources in the Torah that show us 
you know, what the base of the oral law is and how we got to these rules. But, but if you really want to understand how to keep Shabbos, you want to understand, you know, what are the rules of kosher, you want to understand all these really fundamental ideas of Judaism, you have to really put together both the written and the oral law. You know, and the Gemara obviously brings, is, is uh, one of the main writings bringing down the oral law. Um, the Mishnah, its precursor, is really the first written down text of the oral law because it was, you know, written around the time was, or I should say, it was compiled around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, and there was a fear that, with the Jews scattered around the world, that that the rules would get lost and that people wouldn't be able to continue to keep them, and that's why they decided to start writing down the oral law, and and that gives us now the advantage that we can look in the Mishnah, we can look in in the Gemara, and see the oral law and see how it connects to the written law, and putting the two together and the synthesis of that is really what makes up, you know, Judaism and, and the Holocaust overall. I love that, Rabbi. That was very deep, very deep. And, and, and I do want to share something. If we can talk about it, you know, this upcoming week, uh, well, actually tonight uh, starts Hanukkah, uh, which, you know, means dedication, rest. And uh, Rabbi, I want to ask you, because this is interesting, right? Hanukkah is a new festival, a holiday that came about three to four hundred years after Purim, so Purim. So it's amazing how this became a, a big holiday, and and I want you to share a little bit about Hanukkah and and like a little bit about the history. Sure, I'd love to do that. So so Hanukkah, as you mentioned, is one of sort of the two uh, rabbinic holidays, right? I, I I don't I don't love the you know people talk about the major holidays and the minor holidays. Hey, they're all important, right? They're all good, but 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 we do have holidays that are biblical and holidays that are rabbinic, right? Things that come from the Torah and holidays that, that came from a later point. So Hanukkah is one of the two major um, rabbinic holidays that that survives until today. The if if you look in the Gemara, the Gemara talks about in the times of the Second Temple, they had many many different minor holidays, and it really is a really interesting thing to see. Right, Hanukkah and how Hanukkah came to survive, um, and 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 you know where many of the other minor holidays that the, that, that are brought down, you know that they the, the Gemara says they actually had a book which had like all the little minor holidays, um, and and why did those holidays not survive, and why did Hanukkah survive? So I think one of the reasons that Hanukkah survives is because. It is, even though it is the story that happened with the Jews living in Israel, it's fundamentally a story about exile, right? There is a, a concept that there are four, four major um, exiles that the Jewish people will have to go through. You have the exile, okay, of, of, of Babel, of Babylonia, the struck the first temple. You have the exile of Madai, right, of, of Media, which is one of the kingdoms, you know, from the story of, of Purim. You have the exile of the oven of the Greeks, and you have the exile of, of Rome, okay, the destruction of the Second Temple, the one that we are still, unfortunately, living through, you know, thousands of years later today, and hopefully until we all make it back to Israel one day. And the, what makes um, the, the exile of Yavon, of, of, of the Greeks, different than the, all the other ones, is that all the other ones involved us being kicked out of Israel, or being out of Israel, whereas Hanukkah takes place in Israel, and yet 
okay, it's still it's still an exile, and the reason why it's why it's we still think of it as one of the exiles is because it wasn't as much about you know us and how we relate to the land, as much as how we relate to the idea of Jewish peoplehood in the Torah. So Rav Sadia Gon, you know, very famously says right that that the Torah and the Jewish people are one entity, right? That there is a it's really the glue that holds the Jewish people together. During the time of Yavon, during the time of the Greeks, the Jewish people, many of them, okay, um, left Judaism and took on the, the, the uh, culture of the Greeks. Hanukkah wasn't so much a war of the Jews versus the Greeks. It was in part a civil war as well. It was really the Jews who supported Torah and wanted to continue the Jewish people, okay, under their you know, under our traditions, under, un, 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 under, under the Torah rule, versus those Jews who had decided to join the Greeks, okay, or, or, or rather the, you know, the Seleucid, you know, it's, it's when, when Alexander died, the, the kingdom broke up into uh, four different kingdoms, okay, this was the, uh, one of the four kingdoms that ruled Israel, the Seleucid dynasty, and they, okay, they ruled over, and th- them and the Jews that supported their rule were really fighting against the Jews who were opposed to it and who wanted to uh, resume the, the practice of Judaism and Jewish sovereignty in the, in the land of Israel. And with us, you know, being in, a, in, in certain ways throughout our exile, we've faced that, that struggle many times, right? The, as we're scattered amongst the nations, we have a question. Who are we? You know, what does it mean to be a Jew? Can I walk away from Torah? Can I be part of the culture of the nation that I'm living in and and yet okay still you know remain on some you know remain on some level okay a Jew and it's that question that's really at the heart of Hanukkah is, is, is okay and and therefore that's why Hanukkah tends to ring sort of eternal and that's why it lasted and that's why it became prominent at a time when many of the other minor holidays became, Okay, or many of the you know rabbinic holidays, Second Temple holidays became less prominent, uh, was because of that. It, it 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 has a message that you know we're sitting in America today, and we have a question, the same question, right? Are we right? Are we loyal to the ideas of the Torah, or is our culture going to be no different than any of our neighbors down the street? No, that's that's deep, Rabbi. You 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 definitely hit it. Boom, boom, boom. I love it. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm learning a lot, Rabbi. Now, Rabbi, I, I got to ask you, you know, one of the things that, of course, you know, studying yeshiva, right? Um, I only went for the summer, but, like, one of the biggest yeshiva questions of all time for, for uh, on Hanukkah was uh, was when Bey Yosef talks about uh, why is it eight days, Right. The the why why should we celebrate it for eight days? It's a, it's a big one because there's so many um there's a lot of answers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's it. So yeah, so, so this is actually one of the questions that uh, probably of, of of any question I've ever seen on Judaism, very possibly has the most answers. You 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 could probably do a half dozen podcasts just on the answers to this question alone. And also, it's great that you went to Yeshiva, you know, over the summer. I'm, I'm happy to send you back. We can talk about that some other time. Oh, thank uh, you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in terms of that question, there, there really are 
such a variety. And there's, I'll only share one that I, I think is really um, special and, and really uh, uh, taps into an idea that we ourselves could use a lot. So the, the, the question, just to, to make sure it's, it's you know, clear for people who don't have your level of learning and aren't as familiar with, with the question. So we celebrate Hanukkah for eight nights. And the reason we celebrate Hanukkah for eight nights is that they're, the, the Jews, when they got back to the temple, and they were able to finally kick the Greeks out and reclaim the temple. They had a problem, which was the Greeks had defiled all of the oil in the temple. In order to be able to be used in the temple, it had to be handled in a state of ritual purity. And they didn't have any oil for, for to be able to light the menorah, which was a problem. So they went ahead and they searched for any pure oil they could find. And they only found one day's worth of pure oil that had escaped, okay, uh, being defiled by the Greeks. And now they, you know, went ahead. Okay, what are we going to do? You know, we know that they, they needed eight days in order to be able to get new oil, um, you know, to go through the to go through the process of pressing it and um, going to the parts of Israel where that where it was more common, pressing it, bringing it back, and and using it. But what are they going to do in the meantime? So they went ahead and said, look, we're going to go ahead and we'll light the first night. And we'll light, I'm sorry, we'll light that night. And that, you know, we'll see what happens. And they lit, and they lit the manure with a one day's worth of oil. And it lasted for eight days. And that's why we celebrate for eight days. But the question is, that's a little problematic. If the reason we're celebrating for eight days is to remember eight nights of miracle, there weren't eight nights of miracle. There was only seven nights, right? The first night, they had one night's worth of oil. So there was nothing miraculous about one night's worth of oil lasting for that first night. So therefore, we should only celebrate seven days, days that are miraculous, and not just, okay, celebrating, okay, eight days. And the answer, I think, is very tied into um, Hanukkah, right? So Hanukkah celebrates two miracles. One, it celebrates the miracle of the oil. But two, it also celebrates the miracle that the Jews were able to prevail in battle against the Greeks, even though the Greeks were, you know, more numerous than they were. You know, they had, you know, better weaponry, you know, wealthier, wealthier army, you know, stronger army. And by any conventional standards, the, the you know, Matis Yohu and his family and their army should have lost. Right. There's no way, reasonable way that they should have win. Right. We should have won. Right, if we had uh, if they had you know good betting odds in those days on it, uh, it would have been a very long odds for the Jews to, to win that war. And you know, once again, this is sort of a funny miracle. I mean, sometimes right countries that you wouldn't necessarily expect to win win wars do win wars. Um, we've seen you know we're seeing today, uh, you know, over the past over the past year, right? A year ago, you know, if you would ask people what would happen in a military confrontation between Ukraine and Russia. I don't know that so many people would have expected the result they got, right? It's, it's, come, it's turned out very different than much of the world thought it would go. And there have been many, many examples of that throughout human history. So in what way is that really a miracle worth celebrating as well? And, and one of the answers to both of these questions is, is that there's a, the, the way that we look, divide the world between nature and miracles is really a false dichotomy. To God, there's no difference between a miracle and, okay, nature, right? They're both just Hashem, okay, expressing his will on the world. 
we perceive them differently, right? Because we perceive nature as being, okay, well, this is just sort of the regular way the world works. And we perceive miracles as being, well, this is something extraordinary. This is, this is you know, Hashem imposing his will on the universe. But really, they're just the same. They're just different ways. Now, miracles, all right, obviously, attune us a little bit better to seeing, wow, this is special. Because everything else, okay, we get used to the fact that we get up in the morning and walk outside, right? We see the, the beautiful mountains surrounding Vegas. And we say, okay, yeah, you know, this is nature. It's beautiful. It's great. But then after three, four, five days, you don't see it anymore. I remember when I moved to town, like every day I'd get up and I'd go outside and I'd see the mountains. And I, you know, I came, moved here from New York City, which I love. And, and it's a beautiful place in many ways, but we don't really have beautiful nature that close like that. And I was like so astounded. And every day, you know, I'd go out and I'd see it. And I'd be so excited. And I realized after about three, four months, I wasn't really noticing the mountains anymore. <laughs> right? I, wasn't, I, I didn't see it anymore. Right, we get so used to the things that are natural to us that we don't realize how special and spectacular they are. On Hanukkah, where we have this mix between the natural and the supernatural, right? between nature and miracles, it allows us to have the opportunity to step back and see that really everything comes from Hashem. Both the things that are nature and the things okay, that, we, that we classify as miracles are equally Hashem's work, and therefore... We, we need to celebrate equally the fact that, hey, we, Hashem gave us this thing called oil, right? That came out of, you, know, you, you walk up to a tree, you take an olive, you squeeze it. Now you've got this, you know, beautiful, okay, uh, oil that you can now light and do a, whole, do a holy mitzvah with, okay, and serve Hashem. And that's just as much a special testament to what Hashem created in this world as, um, you know, any miracle that we think of as, wow, this is crazy, the oil lasted seven more days than it should. And that's why we celebrate eight days, and that's why we celebrate a military victory. Because once we have our eyes opened and we have the perspective of, of having seen the miracle, we're able to really see, okay, that everything is really a gift from Hashem. That's very, oh, I love it, Rabbi. You, you got me so pumped up, I can't <laughs> wait. And this, this is amazing. I feel like, you know, um, and, and that, like I was saying, Rabbi, you are very, you know, good uh, storyteller. I love that what you're doing for the youth, right? For the Jewish experience, helping young people reconnect to their faith, uh, reconnect to the ways of, you know, Torah, of, you know, um, a studying. So I think it's beautiful, Rabbi. I feel like, you know, right now it's a time where people are scared to to show that they're Jewish, right? Because of all the the things that's going on with the media. It, it's a scary time, but I feel like this is where we have to stand together and and, and uh dive in a lot, pray, do tefillah, because you know Hashem is always gonna be there. He's always there for the good, the bad, the ugly. He's always there. And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. Even both of us here, you know um, talking, you know, sharing ideas. I think this is uh, amazing because for people that are not Jewish, they can, you know, learn different things, different customs, even what you shared about, about Hanukkah and kosher. I, I think it's wonderful, Rabbi, and I'm very grateful to have you. Thank you. And, you know, look, in terms of, you know, anti-Semitism, and, and I, look, it is scary. You know, every, every year, you know, I work with students at UNLV, 
and you know at UNR. And I don't remember a single year that since I started working at UNR where we didn't have at least one time where there was a swastika or something like that, and the students felt threatened. And a lot of students at UNLV have expressed to me that they're they're a little bit scared to walk around with the t-shirts or caps or whatever that have Jewish symbols on them because they're worried about, you know, what could happen. But, you know, ultimately the truth is as bad as it is, you know, it's been worse a lot throughout Jewish history. And, and it's funny, you know, we're, we're, we get, we get nervous because, and, and it's legit. There's, there's a good reason for people to feel nervous, but at the same time, um, you know, the Jews have survived a long time and they've survived through a lot worse things. Uh, in a couple weeks, you know, my, my wife and uh, Mrs. Okubi, you know, who, who, you know, works, you know, as part of, you know, our organization are taking a group of 19 students to Poland and, you know, it should be a beautiful trip. And a lot of it is right. You know, it's, it's, it's a reminder and, and I don't mean just the Holocaust, right. You know, the Jews were in Poland for a thousand years. Okay. There was a lot of other things that went on and there were a lot of other very difficult times and we survived them all. And I believe it was Rav Yaakov Emden who was uh, once said that the miracle of Jewish survival, right, the fact that we lasted for thousands of years when so many stronger empires, when so many countries that seemed to be much more dominant and much more powerful fell, okay, is one of, you know, is, is one of the greatest proofs, okay, he said, he said it was even greater than the splitting of the Red Sea in terms of the miracles of Jewish history. Um, and, 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 you know, even in America, right, there have been times, you know, where things have been worse. My father, my father grew up, um, as a kid in a lot of different places. And one of the places he grew up was Montgomery, Alabama, right? So this is, you know, if you think Montgomery, late 1960s, you know, still pretty, pretty close to the height of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, he went to a school with, uh, you know, they still had separate black and white water fountains and, you know, where definitely, you know, the KKK was pretty strong and white supremacy was was at a really ugly, ugly high. And my father told me, you know, they, they used to bully, you know, the Jewish kids, okay, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, the Jews and the African, Jewish kids and the African American kids had to kind of work together to protect themselves against, you know, being bullied or being harassed. And, you know, time, there have been many times like that and places like that that have been a lot worse for us, okay, than things are today. You know, thankfully, we're in a place where, you know, we can worship, okay, freely and we can keep Judaism. And, you know, most of our neighbors, okay, are, are, are you know, pretty friendly to us. Um, you know, I, a couple of years ago, I went to Poland and I was in Krakow and for Shabbos and we're walking down the street. And, you know, you have tour groups taking pictures of the Jews in the street who are walking to shul, almost like, you know, like, we're, we're, like it's a zoo and we're the exhibit. And in America, you don't really feel like that. There are, there are definitely there are things that happen. And, you know, unfortunately, there are some people who are not per, uh, particularly nice or don't like us very much. But in the end, you know, a person shouldn't have to feel scared to be a Jew. And ultimately, the, the biggest antidote when a person does is, when you when you show it there that you're a proud Jew, when you step out, you you know you own it. You wear a yarmulke, you wear you know a necklace with a Jewish star. Okay, you show you know people, you know your friends, and oh, I'm I'm comfortable. Say, look, I'm going to eat kosher, and I don't I don't feel you know care how weird it's going to make me feel around other people. I can stick to it. You end up you know feeling a lot better about it. 
Um, a bunch of years ago, I, uh, so I, you know, I'm also a lawyer in addition to being a rabbi. So a bunch of years ago, I had a meeting with a client. It was a very big client, very big case. And the client, um, he only wanted to meet in Jersey City where he lived. And he said, look, you can pick you know, whatever restaurant. I don't have a problem going to a kosher place, but got to be in Jersey City. So now there's a, a nice Jewish community in Jersey City. Um, but, you know, back then there, there wasn't. So we ended up eating. Was, this is a Muslim client of mine. Um, and we ended up eating at a halal uh, restaurant. And we're sitting there at the table and it's him, you know, our Muslim client and his Syrian Christian uh, business advisor. Right, an Armenian, my Armenian, okay, uh, um, Christian boss, myself, and one uh, Jew who unfortunately was eating the non-kosher food. Right, it almost sounds like the, the setup to a joke, but it's not. And we're sitting there, and I'm, you know, everyone else has the food on their plate, and I order, you know, a Coke, and I'm sitting there, you know, watching everyone eat. And the business advisor starts in on me. He's like, come on, halal and kosher. It's the same thing. No big deal. Right. You go ahead. It's, you know, well, you know, why can't you just go ahead and eat it? I said, you know, don't worry. I'm fine. And he just goes on and he keeps, he keeps pushing it every couple minutes. And finally his boss, the, you know, our client turns to him and says, just respect the guy's religion, knock it off. Right. And, and, and the truth is there's a lot of people like that in America. You know, people who are willing to, okay, to be there for us. And I think we should have a certain level of appreciation and recognition. And obviously, we, you know, a person has to be careful. You know, unfortunately, we live in a world where lots of shuls do have armed security. And, you know, that may be necessary. But at the same time, we have to react, you know, not by hiding our faith and our Jewishness, but by being proud and, 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 and you know, being able to stand up and say, yeah. You're right. I am Jewish. That's who I am. Yeah, Rabbi. No, this that's an amazing story, man. I'm glad that the guy stood up for you, man. You know, that's <laughs> that's amazing. Well, look, Rabbi, I'm gonna wrap it up before uh, guys. Uh there you have it. This is the Outlet's Reality, the holdest podcast in Vegas and Chicago every Tuesday. Don't forget to like, share, comment, and subscribe. Cha-ching! You know where to find me. I'm on Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, the Outlet to Reality. My TikTok is at Yakov28. And my Snapchat is Take One Pass It. And Rabbi, where can my fans find you? So we're Las Vegas Jewish Experience. Uh, we're on Instagram, okay, Facebook, and Twitter at, at LV Jewish. And our website is LasVegasJewishExperience.org.